I'd love you uh, to find a Bible and uh, turn to the book of Leviticus, which if you're not sure where it is, is towards the beginning of the Bible. You've got Genesis, Exodus, and then Leviticus. Okay. Now, we're not going to read just for a moment, but let me, uh, let me talk about what we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it. In our church, um, over pretty much all of the ministry that I've been engaged with here, um, we try to take seriously our engagement with the Bible. And in doing so, what we've tried to do over the years is actually read the Bible together and try and make sense of a number of things. What, what was happening there within that period? What might it tell us about God and his purposes? And then move to, well, what would it mean for us now? And I'm absolutely convinced that the way we grow in understanding how to live as Christians is through that process. And it's through that process that we, we do together. And it's through the process that we have to do as individuals. That you have to wrestle with the Bible. The danger we all have... And the danger we all can fall into, if we're not careful, is that we create a God of our own image. That we create a God that we think he should be like. And then if things don't work out according to the way we think they should, we then accuse this God of letting us down. And once you start reading the Bible, then some things become more complicated and some things become clearer. Some things become more complicated because actually, and I, I want to say this right, God's not simple. But then you wouldn't expect a creator of a universe to be simple. You wouldn't expect a creator of a universe to be one plus one always will always equal two, in that sense. You wouldn't want to always sense, well, we understand exactly what God's like. And of course, the biblical story is that this is a God who reveals himself, so you can know him, but you never own all that knowledge. You never can box him in. You can never say, I've got it. So faith is, the longer you go on with faith, the more profound it should be. And in a sense, you should be able to face up to the complication of faith. Now, I know that all of that can be misheard. And uh, you might accuse me of trying to sort of make it intellectual. It's not intellectual. It's just the reality that you probably have encountered in your own life. When you were 17, in one sense, the world was quite simple. And if you were a typical 17-year-old, you pretty much knew the answer to everything. And I'm sure your parents told you that. You think you know best. You think you know everything. You think you know exactly how life should be. And now, you're not 17. <laughs> well, who'd want to be 17 again? Let's be honest. Now you're not 17. And the older you get, the more, in one sense, the more complicated life becomes. You get the curveballs of life. You get the things you didn't expect. You get the things you didn't expect about yourself. 
let alone the things that happen to you. And life becomes more complicated. Well, faith, in one sense, becomes deeper and needs to be explored more. That's why you need to read the Bible. If you don't want that, if you don't want to have to wrestle with that, then it's much easier not to read the Bible at all than just hang on to two or three phrases you know and fill them with everything you think. All right? And I think what you end up with is a superstitious sort of religion. So the first thing is that actually, if you want to grow in understanding how to live, you have to wrestle with the Bible. This Bible is God's word to us. It's God who speaks to a people on planet Earth and says, this is who I am. I want to reveal who I am, and this is how to live. But the Bible's not a simple rule book. It's far more nuanced than that. And we're going to read Leviticus, and there's going to be lots of uh, things in there that it's like a different, well, it, and let's be honest, it is. It's a different world. It's a strange world. It's a world where you go, oh my, I don't know if I get that. And so the temptation for many of us is to say, well, we'll just not read it. And that's actually been a temptation for Christians down the ages. There was in church history a man called Marcion, who in the early church said, you don't need the Old Testament at all. Let's just cut it out and just stick to the New Testament. And if you do that, what you end up with is a very impoverished understanding of Jesus and what Jesus has done. So when we start to read scripture, one of the questions we're asking all the time is, what does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about God's ways? And then we're moving towards, well, what does it say to me? If you're too quick to go to the third question, you'll miss the riches. So when we start to read Leviticus, it's really important that you don't go too quick to say, what does it mean for me? All right, I'm going to pause for a minute and just ask, does that make sense? (laughs) Are you with me? All right. Uh, on, on Friday and Saturday, I, I, this Friday and Saturday, I've just been with uh, 100 Chinese leaders in London. And it's really interesting, talking to Hannah before, the, and, and Dave, the, really interesting that in a Chinese culture, um, nobody answers you back. Some of you would love it. Um, <laughs> n- nobody asked anything, nobody. And, and I was sort of standing there saying, so, what are you thinking? And it was like, nope, we're not going not gonna to play. We're just not going to play. So, um, but, but do you understand what I'm trying to get at? So before we, we read, let's just remind ourselves where Leviticus fits. Well, it fits in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Together, they are known by Jews as the Torah. All of it is the law. It's a story of how God creates a creates humanity, and then creates a people. And he fashions them, and he creates them into a nation. And he does it as all nations are created, with this is how you should live. These are the laws that you will live by. Those five books of the Bible contain history, and as the the rest of the Old Testament Uh, flows out, then actually is the ongoing history of these people, these people who were created 
here in the first book, five books of the Bible. And then the prophets will come who speak to a later nation. And they'll say, do you remember who you're supposed to be? Let's go back to the Lord. Do you remember what it was said? Do you remember? It's like a founding document. It's like your foundational constitutional outline. This is who you are. This is how to live. And so the prophets will keep going back and saying, do you see this? And then Jesus comes. And it's easy to think Jesus comes and goes, oh, oh, that's rubbish. But he doesn't, does he? He comes and he says, actually, all of that I want to fulfill. All of that I want to take in on myself and make real again for you. In fact, in one place he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fill it up, to fulfill it. So Jesus looks, and when you read the Gospels, what you'll see, if you're interested, is the times when Jesus refers back to this part of the Bible. If there was one thing that we would want to say Leviticus is about, what's it actually about? Well, let me just uh, go back for a moment. Genesis is the, the creation of, the, the, the story of the creation of the world and the story of a creation of people we would call now Jews. Exodus is a little bit more of that story about how they go through the, um, they, they, they escape Egypt, they go through the Red Sea. And then actually, most of Exodus is God telling Moses how to build a worship space, which, because they're, they're living in a desert and on the move, is a big tent. This is, I mean, I know that that sounds a little bit sort of diminished as it all, but it was essentially a big tent. And, and they've got a lot of furniture within the tent, but it's a big tent. It's a tabernacle. It's a tent. And then the other bit of Exodus is the story of them building the tent. <laughs> so effectively, you read it twice. You read, this is what you should do, and you get all that, and then you just read, and that's what they did do. And then you get to Leviticus. And Leviticus is about, well, how are you going to live then? How are you actually going to live? How are you going to deal with... Money. How are you going to deal with sex? How are you going to deal with social relationships? How are you going to deal with um, uh, times when you, are, when you defraud each other? How are you going to deal with your worship? And that's what Leviticus is all about. How are you going to live? Numbers is probably the best named book of the Bible. <laughs> all right? Because it's like a telephone directory, all right? <laughs> if you read through numbers, it's actually quite a difficult book. There's little bits of story, but actually in between the bits of story, just lots of lists of names. And you think, well, why? Well, it might be difficult for us to see why that's important. But if you were part of that family, how chuffed would you be to see your name listed? We're part of the people of God. We belong. And then Deuteronomy is, in a sense, the restating of all of this, what it means to be the people of God, as they now begin to establish themselves as a nation in their own right. So, what's the one thing that Leviticus is about? Well, the one verse that would sum up Leviticus is found in the 19th chapter in verse 2. And it's that phrase, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, I'm holy. 
Now, we'll talk a lot about holiness when we look at Leviticus. And holiness is one of those words that actually gets bad press amongst most people. Holy Joes. Or uh, too holy for his own good. Or he tries to be too holy. Or all the rest of it. But holiness, in this sense, is actually being set apart so that God can use you. That's what it means to be holy. To be set apart so God can use you. Be holy. Because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And the point of having the globe there is because what God wanted for these people who were being created into a nation was that they might be set apart for God's use for the whole world. It's not that God somehow is like this very sensitive ant, great ant, who's easily offended. It's actually that you are called to be set apart. So much of the book of Leviticus is about law, about the laws that people should keep. And the law is understood as the barriers, if you will, that's why we've got that picture, the barriers that will keep you on course with what God would want you to be. We know that, in a sense, what we all want is freedom. Freedom to do whatever we want to do. But any of us who've had to deal with children in any uh, context at all, just with children at the moment, know that actually if you give children no boundaries, they're the most unhappy children. It's not just that they go wild, it's that they're deeply unhappy. Because actually there's no safety, there's no security. Can you imagine living in what would be an anarchic state? Anarchy's great if it's just up to you. If it's just, I'll do what I want. But of course, anarchy has a really destructive effect on everybody else around you. You need some rules. This time last year, um, uh, I was in, I, I had the chance, I did some work in Copenhagen. And um, we, we took the opportunity um, of having a weekend there. If I get the chance to go to these places, I try and say to them, could I do the work on a Thursday or a Friday? Because then there's always a chance that they'll pay for me to stay for the weekend. So um, anyway, they did. And uh, so we went to Copenhagen for the weekend. It was freezing cold. But we went to this place in Copenhagen called Christiana. And it was in the 1960s, uh, some hippies set up a commune in the middle of Copenhagen. Copenhagen is a lovely place, but they set up this little place. And now it's become this really famous sort of town within a town. And you go in, and it is really... I mean, I know that I'm really cutting-edge street, <laughs> fashion-wise, um, but even I didn't fit in. Um, you know, it's all dreadlocks and uh, marijuana, uh, cannabis, you know, it's just like everywhere. And uh, it's all very... You can get a picture from. But what's really interesting in this most anarchic place, they elect their own little government so that they can decide the rules. So on the afternoon we were there, they were all, everybody was renovating one of the big barns that they use. And they all have to do it. You have to give your time. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? The most cannabis, it was like, everybody was like, mm, 
<laughs> but in that sort of place, all very cool and trendy and uh, bohemian, it's like, no, you can't live without these guidelines. Now, the really tricky bit is we live almost 4,000 years since those guidelines were there. And there's some things you'd want to ask. You need to understand, well, why are they there and, and how might they apply to us? It's not simply that we can simply take those laws and put them onto our own, onto ourselves. Not least because Jesus comes and he starts to kind of, he messes with the rules a bit. Let's put it that way. He starts to say, you've got to hear that, but you've got to do this. And changes it ever so slightly. But it's not true. All law is bad. Okay, you with me? Okay, well, we'll get to the actual text now. So, you start in Leviticus, and it's kind of interesting because when you read the first bit of Leviticus, it simply starts like this The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, and, you, and before you go any further, you want to go. That's no way to start a new book. That sounds like halfway through another chapter of something else. Well, of course, in one sense it is. And so you've got to start reading at the end of Exodus. This is how Exodus finishes from verse 34. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, this place that they'd constructed. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, the place where they really worshipped. Moses couldn't enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they'd set out. But if the cloud didn't lift, they didn't set out until the day it lifted. No, as God was guiding them. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. Now, it makes sense of the next bit. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from this tent and said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he's to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. He's to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it'll be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He's to slaughter the young bull before the Lord. And then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He's to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priests, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the burning wood that is on the altar. He's to wash the inner parts and the legs with water. And the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It's a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering's a burnt offering from the flock, from either sheep or goats, he's to offer a male without defect. He's to slaughter it at the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle its blood against the altar on all sides. He's to cut it into pieces, and the priests shall arrange them, including the head and the fat on the burning wood that's on the altar. 
He's to wash the inner parts and the legs with water. And the priest is to bring all of it and burn it on the altar. It's a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, he's to offer a dove or a young pigeon. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off the head, burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He's to remove the crop with its contents and throw it to the east side of the altar where the ashes are. He shall tear it open by the wings, not severing it completely, and then the priest shall burn it on the wood that's on the fire on the altar. It's a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Well, that's the sort of bit of the Bible when you're reading it on your own, you go, oh, very good. Let's just get it, though. This is part of the first eight chapters, all about sacrifice. It's all about the holy people who get things wrong. <coughs> and if you ever thought sometimes the Bible is a long way removed from us, nowhere is this more true than here. Because when you come to worship in Leviticus, you bring with you a bull or a sheep. Or if you're poor, a pigeon, or, second, next chapter, some flour. Now, this is a long way removed from our, sometimes when we have lunches together and we're all bringing in quiche. Um, but I want you to imagine this. Here's the people, and they're coming, and they've been told that actually, the reality is, that you will get things wrong in your life and you do need to come before a holy God. And for reasons that you don't need to know, the Bible says, this is how you get right. You bring some of your animals. Now, we have a strange relationship with, um, with cows and sheep and birds, don't we? We, most of us, really like it when they're in cellophane in Tesco's or cooked really well on a plate, but not many of us want to think about the process of how it came from in a field to the fridge. We have a strange relationship, but they're less, they're less sensitive in these days because these animals are part of their wealth. It's part of their, it, for some of them, it would be the equivalent of bringing your car or bringing your money or bringing your computer or bringing your guitar and saying, God, I give you this. I give it away. I give it this and it's costly and it's a sacrifice because, God, what I need is to get right with you. And once you start thinking about sacrifice and about how do these offerings put us right, you can't go very far before you realize that Leviticus reminds us that sin matters. And as I said before, it's not because God is this sensitive aged ant who's easily offended. But let's recognize what sin is. Sin destroys everything that is created for good. Sin takes what God meant for our blessing, twists it 
and mangles it. And in its extreme forms, takes it out of all recognition of what it should have been. We're living at a time when, for the last two months, the newspapers and television news has been given us more and more information about one person that we used to think was eccentric but did good, and yet actually was committing sin of the most grievous order. And what you're hearing about is how sin has twisted and warped, and how sin has destroyed and taken something that was good and has manipulated it into something that's evil. What you're reading about with Jimmy Savile and the rest is something that God gave and sin destroys. And of course it's, for all of us, we want to say, well, you know, that's a long way from us. But one of the interesting things in these first chapters is in chapter 4, just, I'm not going to read the whole of the chapter, but just to turn to chapter 4. See how that begins. The first three chapters are just about the sort of different animals you'd bring to sacrifice and then of the, of the, of the flower. Chapter 4 begins like this. Say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally and does what's forbidden in any of the Lord's commands. And then he starts to outline it. In verse 3, if the anointed priest sins, verse 13 begins, if the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally, verse 22, when a leader sins unintentionally, and so on and so forth. And what Leviticus is really clear about is there's not one of us that says, it doesn't involve me. Some, some and, and Leviticus does do this, it divides sin up into unintentional sin, stuff we didn't intend, and intentional rebellious sin, stuff we really did intend. And if we're honest, we know how both those things work in our own lives. We know that sometimes we find that we've damaged relationships, that we've damaged a situation, that the words we've said have actually destroyed something, and it's almost unintentional. We never intended that to happen. And there's other stuff we've done where, if truth be known, we thought, I'm going to do that because that's what I want. And we've taken what could have been good and we have broken it. I'm impressed by Leviticus because it says anointed priests do that. Don't look and say, well, they're probably okay. People in the community do that. Don't think there's people sitting next to you and they're, they're perfect. The central truth of the Bible, and Paul will talk about it when he writes a letter to the Romans, is that everybody has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Everybody. Now, in one sense, this really helps me in my relationships with people. Because when I get really cross with, I don't, I mean, you know, when I get annoyed with people or when I do get cross with people or when I get let down by people, it's because sometimes it's because 
they've broken their promise or they've broken their word or they've not done what they said they're going to do or blah, 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 blah. It doesn't really matter what it is. But essentially, at the end of the day, it's because at some very low-grade level, someone's messed up. And my annoyance happens when I expect everybody else to live at that level and then I discover they live there. Except when it's me. And then it's, well, I never intended it. So where's the grace I offer? Do I live expecting everybody else to be perfect? Or can I live in the light of a scriptural command, uh, a scriptural view that says, everybody sinned. So don't be surprised. So really, really stupidly, when they cut you up, on the M62. There's no point shouting the odds at them. They may have done it intentionally. They may have done it unintentionally. They probably messed up. Where's grace? When the person says something to you and you go away going, oh, that really hurts. It might have been unintentional. It might have been intentional. But did you expect them to be perfect? Where's the grace? It takes us to the heart of our faith. I've not really got time to read it now, but I would encourage you to read uh, chapter 9 of Hebrews, where the writer of the Hebrews reflects on these passages in Leviticus and about what Jesus did. At the heart of our faith is the story of a God, the God of the universe, who becomes a man who is rejected by a society, crucified, but rises from the dead. What we believe and what we're led to believe by the New Testament is that Jesus took the sin, the sinfulness, the errors, the mistakes, the unintentional, the intentional, the rebellion, the warpedness in our own nature, and he took it on himself that we might be forgiven. The reason you don't bring a bull to church every week is not because you've not got a bull. The reason you don't bring a sheep, the reason you don't bring a pigeon, the reason you don't bring a sacrifice is because Jesus did it for us. The difficulty with it is it can sound just like religious talk until you appropriate it for yourself and then you see that actually my brokenness, my flawedness, my mess up, my sin is dealt with by Jesus on the cross. That you are not kept distant from God because God came to us and said, I will, I'll stand in the place of the bull. It'll be my blood splattered. I'll stand in the place of the sheep. It'll be my body that is broken. I'll stand in the place of the pigeon, the pigeon whose wings are torn apart, and my body will be torn for you. So, in the same way as the people in Leviticus came with their guilt, came with their lack of peace, 
Jesus comes and says, for you that come and trust me, for you that come and receive me as Lord, for you who come and say, I'm pinning all my hopes on the death of Jesus, the peace is yours. So where, do, where does all this talk of sacrifice land? Final slide. It lands here. It lands with you and I being able to be really honest. You know, sometimes, you know, that you see those sort of stereotypical um, uh, messages of people, the sort of turn or burn people who stand on the street and, um, or, you know, repent because your sins will find you out or all that sort of stuff. And you look at it and you think, well, you might think all sorts of things, but one of the things you think is, that's got nothing to do with me. Because deep down, all of us want to go, we're okay. But the moment you can't admit, actually, I do mess up, is the moment you can't receive the grace that God offers you. The, 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 the moment you say, I'm doing okay, I'm fine, thank you, is the moment that you miss out on the love and the mercy that God offers you. The best thing about, one of the best things about the cross and the resurrection is this, that Jesus enables you to live absolutely honestly. Honest about who you are. Honest about those you live with. Honest about your situation. And God, through Jesus, transforms it. He doesn't leave you feeling like a worm groveling, but he actually says, I want to give you of my spirit that I might recreate you that you might live for me, that you might live for my purpose. And so, when Paul writes to the Romans, he spends a lot of that letter outlining what Jesus has done for you. He is your sacrifice. He is your substitute. He is the one who paid the price, who ransomed you who bought you back, redeemed you, who put you right with God. And then Paul gets to the therefore. So what do I do now? And in the Bible passage that you probably know uh, well, he says, therefore, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Not now that somehow I'm earning my right with God, but now the only decent response is to give you myself. This is how the message puts it. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. You didn't bring a bull, you didn't bring a sheep, you didn't bring a pigeon, because you didn't need to. But you brought yourself. And the moment you say to God, here I am, I offer you who I am. It's the scariest prayer because you don't know what's going to lead to. But it's the prayer that says, in the light of your grace and mercy, this is who I am.